everyone. Welcome back to the Change Healthcare Podcast. I'm G. Shaw, VP of Platform and Marketplace. And today we'll be talking about the expanding role telehealth offers to our evolving healthcare ecosystem. Joining us today are Anne Mon Johnson, CEO of the American Telemedicine Association, and Carolyn Wilkich, SVP of Network and Financial Management Solutions at Change Healthcare. Before we get started, we hope that you're all well and safe during this public health emergency. And let's get started with our speakers. Anne, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about ATA? Sure. And thank you again for having me and giving us this opportunity to connect with people. Uh, I've been CEO of the ATA for the last two, just over two years, and joined the organization. My background, I'm always quick to point out to people, is coming from early stage startup companies. So this is my first foray in the association world. And I have to say, it's, it's really timing is everything. The ATA started in 1993 by the folks who were the active missions, the clinicians, the pioneers really in telehealth. And back then they were really focused on, you know, making the industry and creating it and doing all the things that we now see today and benefit from today. And when I joined those really, first of all, it was pre-pandemic, early 2018, and uh, it was pretty clear that adoption and engagement in telehealth by both consumers and clinicians was anemic. And so we set out to really redefine the vision of the ATA, which is to ensure that people get care where and when they need it, that when they do, they know it's safe, effective, and appropriate while enabling clinicians to do more good for more people. And that's a very deliberate vision. It's a very clear statement of why we're here and no time like today to really uh, make that happen. So thank you. Carolyn? Great, thanks, G. I'm Carolyn Wilkich. I lead our network and financial management business within Change Healthcare and really focus on the payer market. So what I'm hoping to do today is help share the payer perspective as well as the consumer perspective. Um, I shared with G earlier today, and that I had my first telehealth visit um, during the last, actually the last week. Um, it's the first time I've done that as a healthcare consumer, right? So um, pandemic really forced me into that and it was an awesome experience. So looking forward to the discussion today. Fun. Great. It's great to be here with both of you. So we are here at an unprecedented time for both healthcare and for the economy. And we're seeing a myriad of changes, whether it's in patient preferences, the way that providers operate or in the regulations. And COVID-19, I think we can all see, has dramatically increased the demand for telehealth services as care providers look at ways to manage this mass need of the population, manage those interactions remotely, and ultimately manage risk, both to the patients and the providers alike. But before we jump into it, let's level set. There are many different interpretations of what is telehealth and what does it actually mean? So let's start there. And maybe give us your, your definition. What is telehealth and, and what does it mean across the broader ecosystem? So telehealth, the definition of it is as diverse as the membership of the ATA. The ATA includes delivery systems, uh, pediatric facilities, academic medical centers, payers, as well as solution providers, ranging from the leaders in the industry like Amwell and Teladoc Health to include organizations like Zipnosis and BrightMD that really enable delivery systems and providers to provide telehealth. It includes companies like Livongo and Vivify that provide remote monitoring services as well as chronic disease management. We have organizations that are really steeped in AI like Babylon and Conversa. And then uh, it includes organizations that are the enablers, the people who believe that high water floats all boats like Intel and HP and Sony and Verizon. 
So literally 300 organizations who are committed to ensuring that people get care in a number of different modalities. It could be audio, audio video, um, which is under the synchronous category. It could include asynchronous, it includes remote monitoring. So we've um, decided for ease of discussion to back away from some of the finite distinctions because I think that has a tendency to um, detract from the conversation and has a tendency to try to emphasize things that truly are not that important to like regulators or legislators or even and most especially consumers. I, I think we, we could not agree more. This whole idea of providing virtual care, whether it's telephonic or video, whatever, is really the key to ensuring that we can provide the best quality care to the maximum number of people possible. And I know that COVID is, we certainly seen a change healthcare. COVID has given us this massive opportunity to expand that care footprint. And I think now the question is, how do we actually make that happen? And how do we drive all three parts of this ecosystem, the payers and the providers, but then also the people that are delivering this care modality to patients, the ability to deliver this in an efficient way? Mm -hmm. and, and thinking about that, you know, payers and providers are at all different levels of maturity. I think we've all seen that. And even patients are, you know, with their familiar overall telehealth. And everyone's trying to adjust their operations and their, their ways of thinking to address this demand. And this demand is going to continue. So let's maybe start with Carolyn. How do you think payers and providers can manage the introduction or that increased volume of telehealth visits that they're certainly faced with as everyone wants to go tele in the absence of an in-person visit? I think it really comes to collaboration and education, right? I think it's one, how do you educate the consumer or the, the member about the opportunities as an option, um, especially as you think about the chronic, chronic conditions that some of our patients face, right? And as people have been avoiding care, um, going to a physical location, it's been really a focus of health plans and providers of how do you access those chronically ill patients um, through a virtual visit, right? Um, so that really helps them keep that chronic illness under control or in a maintenance mode. Um, so I think education and then collaboration. Um, as we all think about the payer-provider relationship, um, we have to do a better job collaborating and understanding that this really is a mechanism to enhance access to care, quality of care. Um, and so how do we enable that, right? And I think, you know, the last 90 days, we've all been in a, in a crisis, right? And I think we were trying. Um, and hopefully we can take the momentum here and understand how do you make this an ongoing, sustainable part of our care delivery system, because it really can't help with um, access and the quality of care you can get to a member, um, you know, in a pandemic and going forward, right? There are some cases where this is the right option, um, and actually the, it's the option that's actually less expensive. So as you think about our objective as a country, right, how do we get the right care at the right place, the right time, um, this virtual care option really to me is a, um, it really, it's an explosive growth of that option um, that we can accelerate and hopefully drive better results for the country. And I, I do think it comes to, to collaboration and education and how do we work together to make it happen. Yeah, and it's really thinking about how do we put telehealth into that frame of the quadruple aim again, so we can really mm -hmm. expand the availability of care at, at a high quality that drives a patient outcome, but still is cost efficient and manages a great experience for both patient and provider. I love the way of thinking about it that way, because at the end of the day, 
telehealth is just another care modality. It's just another way to get care where it's appropriate and that collaboration to make that happen is super important. And how, how can payers and providers coordinate their strategies to get to this point where we want to get to, to get to that maximum benefit? Well, it's interesting because, you know, now what we're seeing in headlines is that payers are beginning to roll back their coverage of telehealth services. And I think, you know, it's going to be important for us to engage in very, very frank dialogue about what is worth keeping and what is questionable. You know, what are the guardrails that payers need to feel comfortable about this? So a couple observations. One is that the ATA has engaged with NCQA and the Alliance for Connected Care in a task force to really begin to examine um, how we can inform, um, look at quality as it relates to telehealth and really inform uh, some of the uh, work that's being done at the federal level. So it's a thoughtful exercise. There are a lot of stakeholders involved in it, and I think that needs to happen. I think the other, though, is to remember that even pre-pandemic, pre-COVID, um, with many organizations, they viewed telehealth or virtual care as something that would really make things easier for clinicians in terms of delivering services. That's certainly been a strategy that Intermountain has embraced, as well as meeting patients where they are and creating a better patient experience. So that's certainly the thinking behind a lot of companies. Um, I was just on a panel yesterday with Jenny Schneider at Livongo, and that's certainly a key focus. So I, I think that you know we we have to balance this uh, idea that we're strictly or have been fee for service, many of us, and telehealth has not fared well in that environment historically, to now that we've seen this huge rapid surge of it and to say, you know, what worked? I think the other thing to keep in mind and is, is one that, you know, with the economy, and you mentioned G at the beginning, there's going to be a massive increase in the number of uninsured. Mm -hmm. We're seeing it already, increase in Medicaid roles. And yet with the Medicaid population, only 4% are using telehealth services. Some of that's just because of really arcane laws. And so um, what we think is important is to be in a position where we inform state Medicaid directors and groups about, well, of the services that have truly provided value, here are the ones that you cannot lose track of in the process. And then likewise, acknowledge that people on Medicaid are using phones. And so, you know, that's part of the discussion. So I think it's a really ongoing and very transparent conversation. What I hope and what we're pushing for is that this is not something that's relegated to four years of study and, you know, put us off sleep. So I think we have to move rapidly in this fashion. Well, and that's a great segue into kind of our next area of discussion. And that is, and you know, Carolyn, you said this earlier in one of our conversations, the pandemic has created a moment and it's created a moment where we can see real transformation in the healthcare system and real transformation in how we deal with patients, but also real transformation in how we operate. And, and you talked about it when, when we think about this as a fee-for-service type of model, it may not make sense. When we think about this as a value-based care model, telehealth all of a sudden has great applicability. But up to this point, it's always been, well, there's telederm and telestroke and some very specific places where telemedicine has been used. How do you see it expanding? And how do you see the barriers to that expansion dropping? And we'll talk a little bit about policy later on in our conversation mm -hmm. here. 
that there are some really practical things that payers and providers should be thinking about when they say, should I do telehealth versus not? And what do you think about that? So I think it's really remarkable to see the number of applications that are available. And um, particularly within the pandemic, um, we had a lot of instances with clinicians, for example, who had been big naysayers as it relates to telehealth and said they could never do a well child exam using virtual services. And in point of fact, there's a lot that they can do and they acknowledge it. And so what we found was that during this pandemic, the, you know, Necessity is the mother of invention, right? And we really just became a lot more open to the applicability, the broad applicability of it, to keep people safe, to enable them to stay home, um, to quarantine in place. I think, you know, one area that really shined during the pandemic, during the beginning parts of the surge was asynchronous, where you used AI-driven or interactive assessments, um, either online or through your smartphone, to figure out whether or not your symptoms were consistent with COVID and then what you should do about it. And there were so many surges going on in different communities that sometimes the response was, if your symptoms have not changed for the worst, stay home, stay away from the hospital. So I think the other is that what we found was that clinicians like orthopedic surgeons didn't realize that pick up picking up the phone and calling their patients and talking to them about how they're managing their pain while they're waiting for their so-called elective surgery was a real boon as well. So I just think that um, we have only begin to, begun to scratch the surface of where this can go. There are obviously areas like teledermatology, which have been really done quite a bit, ocular health, um, which has a huge infusion of AI in it to make it very successful. But there are other areas that we're just beginning to see how it, how it plays out. I will say that the one area that has consistently grown and provided consistent value is telemental health services. So pre-pandemic, we didn't have enough clinicians. You know, I think it was 60, 75% of counties in the U.S. didn't have any mental health specialists. And so we had a problem before the pandemic. And now you take that shortage and combine it with the fact that more folks are having tele or mental health issues. I think using these types of services is really important and very reassuring for people. And you bring up a great point because it, it does all fall under that access to care type of thought process. It says we, we already know we have an access to care problem. And even if that's clinical or not just mental health. And now with telemedicine, by creating this, this opportunity, these capabilities for the telemedicine providers or the provider organizations to do this outreach, we can actually drive better care. I'm particularly interested when we think about how we make this better in rural communities or underserved communities where you know, we, it takes 65 or 80 days to even see a doctor, if you can see a doctor at all, and right. how telehealth really starts to even the curve, if you will, uh, of access. I think the other key point there though, and you mentioned it is, there is this experience and I think, Carolyn, you probably met, uh, experienced part of this when you had your telehealth visit. It's kind of disjointed sometimes. You have many applications to go to. Sometimes you're on the phone. Sometimes you're on video. So there's there's an opportunity, I think, to create an integrated process or maybe a seamless process is a better way of saying it. Virtualize mm -hmm. what we feel when we go and have a, a real visit, an in-person visit. And, and the opportunity for growth here is probably driven by the ability to create that seamless end-in experience. So it's one application or less than two applications maybe that you have to interact with to actually get to your visit. But in doing that, and we talked a lot about the patient experience, we talked a lot about the provider experience, 
but there is the underlying operational experience that has to work properly for any of this to work. So Carolyn, what do you think about that? There's definitely some opportunities here and some challenges in the use of telehealth as provider organizations pick it up and start to expand. I, I think that there's a lot of um, reflection that has to happen about how did we handle it during the crisis, right? And then how do we, to your point, industrialize it to make it sustainable and a great experience going forward, right? I mean, what I experienced, right, was not perfect, right? But it was, I got an answer to my question very quickly. Um, and I, it wasn't safe for me. It was better for me to do it virtually, right, than go to the doctor's office, right, and risk exposure. Um, so I think this is the momentum that I'm talking about. They, you know, one of the health plans talked about the 25% of their claims May through, or March through June were virtual claims, right? So you think about 25% of the care for that health plan happened virtually. Um, so you're going to have you're going to have to think about how do we make that work, right? What does that mean? And your comment about reimbursement, right? How do we think about reimbursement so that it's um, good for the provider providing that care, that it's a economically feasible way for them to sustain what they need to do? Um, mm -hmm. How does that make sense for the health plan? How does it make sense for the consumer, right? I I actually don't know for that my own personal experience that happened last week. I don't know if there's going to be a claim, right? My doctor called me back. I sent a photo right off of my cell phone <laughs> and I actually don't know if I'm going to get a, if there will actually be a bill. Right. Um, and in the end he should be compensated for interacting with me. Right. So I think there's this, we've seen the power, right. And now we, I think all the stakeholders, right. The, the providers and the health plans have to take a step back and say, how do we make it sustainable? Due to your experience, your comments around what makes it feel like an experience that I have in other industries, right? I reflect on, you think about flying, you know, 20 years ago, I walked up to a ticket counter, right? And I had to wait for someone to print a ticket now, right? And now I do it all on my phone and I'm happier because I get to control my seat, right? All those types of things. So taking those consumer experiences from their industries and infusing that here, um, I'm, but very conscious about how to make sure that it's the right thing being provided in that setting, um, and addressing the access, it also will help address the cost, right? It's less, what I did with my provider was less expensive than me showing up in his office, right? Um, so that actually helps the overall challenges we have in the industry. So I think well, we have I, a reflection think, point here. Go ahead, Anne. Yeah, no, 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 I was just gonna say, I think it was less expensive on a lot of dimensions, right? You didn't have to spend time yeah. going somewhere. You didn't have to sit somewhere. There was no downtime from your perspective. So I right. think that was, Another thing that gets lost in, in all of this. I will say, though, that, that telehealth is not a panacea. Virtual care is not a panacea. And it's not appropriate for all situations. And um, I've certainly heard that loud and clear from Joe Kavidar, who's the president of the ATA and a dermatologist in Boston at Mass General. And, um, you know, it's very clear that in some instances, face-to-face -face is really very, very important and necessary. And I think we're gonna go through this kludgy period where I was talking to um, a, a physician practice or a group of physicians where pre-COVID they had 5,000 virtual visits a day. And then at the peak, it was up to 150,000 a day across a lot of tens of thousands of providers. And now it's dropped down to about 75,000 per day. So I don't think we're gonna stay as high as we were, but we're, gonna, we're not gonna go as low as we were before. And in that intermediate, we're gonna to have to work out ways to triage and help 
consumers understand what works and what doesn't work. And likewise, clinicians. So I, I think it's going to be a very interesting couple of uh, period of time, and we have to be patient with the process. Well, and there's that opportunity for, for health systems and payers to look at each piece of the journey and say, where is virtual care appointment? For which population, for which set of conditions is it appropriate? And I, I think you're absolutely right, Anne. As things settle, we'll find that you know, the 11% of telehealth visits that happened pre-COVID will go up substantially, but it's not going to go up substantially across the board. We may mm-hmm. see it in very specific specialties. I hope to see it a lot in, in general because that's you know the, the entry point to the health system for many patients, but ultimately it will it will level out and it's where it, where it levels out where we should try to engage that. How do you create that experience in the right way? Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. the other piece is um, there's these, and it'll be a good segue into the next part of our conversation. The regulations have changed. The barriers are gone. I mean, Administrator Berman probably said this the best when she said, we've given our beneficiaries the opportunity to have a televisit. I don't think I can tell them to go back and do it in person now because it was just so convenient and it got them to the outcome they needed. So how do we how do we have that conversation? How do we enable all the companies that are trying to create telehealth experiences, all the tele, telehealth platform providers to be successful? Because now they can get reimbursed. And so, mm-hmm. you know, in, in one sense, great, we can drive innovation. In another sense, and Carolyn, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too. All of a sudden, we have a whole new class of companies and a whole new class of players coming in trying to do coverage and eligibility and claims and payments. And this is new. This isn't something they've done before. <laughs> so how does that impact what happens in the payer world? And, and how do we help smooth that part of the process? I think it goes back to that. Um, I think, Ann, you mentioned this. This is about having the right dialogue with the right stakeholders and doing education, right? I mean, the consumer voice is going to be, you know, very loud here. As you think about a health plan listening to their members, um, they're not going to want to go back. G, you mentioned that even for the seniors, right? They, some of those things they've seen is they've reached audiences they struggled to reach before, whether that was rural to one of your comments or seniors, right? And if I if I if I don't drive anymore, right, my ability to get the doctor's harder, right? That virtual visit enabled me to get seen or to get what I needed, right? To your comment. Um, so I think it's going to be us really as an industry collaborating away with, we haven't collaborated in a way um, before and your comment, right? Hopefully this makes four years to figure out what is the right, you know, if we were here and we were now we, we went here during the pandemic, but really the, the right place to be is in the middle. Um, how do we get there in a way that's effective um, for all the stakeholders, right? Cause it is, it's really taught us, I think, how valuable of a tool it can be, right? And the right situation. And that's really always the challenge is how do you get the, the member to experience the healthcare system in the 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 right place for the right thing, right? Um, mm-hmm. And and to your comment, right during the pandemic, you know, I had my little televisit, but my daughter broke her arm. I, I did not. I did call the doctor's office and say, you know, what do you think? And they're like, go to urgent care. I'm like, right, I'm going to urgent care. Um, so it's not the right answer for everything, but it is an awesome answer for the right situation, right? And that education and that calibration of how do we find that. And you're also going to have individual preferences. I think one of the things the health plans are going to struggle with is um, if it is the type of care that could be done virtually, but the member wants to go see someone, right? Because you're going to have segments of the population that aren't going to be comfortable no matter what happens, right? They're going to be, I want to go see someone, right? And will they will they create the incentives to have that care being done virtually versus go see someone in person? Or will they actually create financial penalties for that member if they do that. Um, so there's a lot to learn here and a lot to 
to figure out. But I do think, and some of the work you're talking about is really important. It's helping people understand that it's clinically sound care can happen virtually for the right care. And how do we help educate people of, and, and get that knowledge out to people so they make the right choices mm-hmm. um, and help yeah. guide them? Exactly. Well, and that's a great segue into talking about the regulations and, and how the regulatory environment has started to change a little bit. With CARES Act, with recent waivers around licensure and being able to take uh, doctors across state lines, there's a lot going on. So, Anne, maybe you can give us a quick summary. What, what has happened? What do you see happening now? And maybe look a little bit in the future and see where that might go. So I think there's a couple of things to point out. One was that Pre-pandemic, we had several champions in Congress that were very supportive of telehealth. Um, Senator Schatz, Senator Hyde-Smith, Representative Thompson. I mean, there were just a lot of folks that were behind it, but it it, it just never quite went over all the, the humps that we needed it to. So what's happened now is that telehealth is really proving to be the bipartisan issue that we can all get behind. And so a couple of things. One is um, Joe Kavidar uh, was one of four folks who testified in front of the health committee at the U.S. Senate. Mm-hmm. And while that committee does not have jur- jurisdiction over Social Security, um, it was an important committee. And what was really noteworthy was the bipartisan support we heard, starting with Senator Lamar Alexander saying, I think this should stay permanent. I was like, right. yes, that's exactly <laughs> correct. So that was really cool. And then following that, um, what happened was a uh, we were one of three groups put together a letter to Congress that was signed. It's noteworthy for two things, I think. One is that it was signed by 340 organizations, which is a lot. And then number two, it was not one of these letter of platitudes and mom and apple pie. It had some really specific asks. And so those asks included, you know, removing the whole obsolete restriction on where people are to ensure that people can get care at home. Because remember, sometimes people don't want strangers coming into their house. They don't know if they're, you know, at risk. Um, And then also providing, maintaining and enhancing certain authority to HHS in terms of what they can be doing to determine appropriate providers. The big move with the federally qualified health centers and rural health clinics in terms of being able to provide telehealth services. Um, So those are some things that we are very clear on that we hope um, uh, become permanent. And then the other is that there were a lot of activities at the state level. One of the things that was missed early on was just this like bowl of cooked spaghetti noodles of licensure and the compacts and so forth, not just for physicians, but for nurses, physical therapists, respiratory therapists, and so forth. So on the one hand, you think, well, this is an emergency waiver and we'll take care of it all at once. But it's still there were a lot of nuances and hiccups associated with that. So I think that from a policy perspective, the ATA, we are very um, much supporting compacts and what they can do to accelerate licensure and to make that happen. I think we'll see a lot of changes with that because there's an acknowledgement, at least in most parties, that. there will be another pandemic and we cannot have the hiccups. I mean, we were all very lucky that technology saved us as much as it did. So, um, you know, we have to do better next time and to have laws and regulations that really support that. 
And there's an opportunity to also expand the footprint. I mean, we, we talk a lot about just virtualizing the care encounter, but uh, I think we all agree, virtual care goes from the office to the near office, eventually to the home and remote monitoring and all that, that right. whole opportunity to drive care to, as Carolyn, you said, where, where it's most appropriate and where you want it to be. So as we think about the new regulatory environment, how, how do we push for that? I and mean, we have a lot of people that are listening to us and I think a lot of people that are similarly incented to say, yes, we want telehealth or virtual care to expand. So how can our listeners help enhance? How can our, help, our listeners help force that, that issue and, and get us to a place where the regulations are the way that we want them to be? So a couple of things. One is, um, you know, we have a very robust website where we're posting a lot of activity in terms of policy and regulations. We've also launched a campaign um, to ensure that the gains that we've made from a regulatory and um, legislative perspective are not rolled back. Um, and those are efforts at the federal and at the state level. And we're working with our members and other partners to make sure we really push those very diligently. There's gonna be a lot of state work in addition to the federal. So I just wanna make sure we don't lose sight of that. Uh, but likewise with the campaign, what we're doing is we are working through thought leadership, through media, to ensure that we've laid the groundwork that number one, we've anticipated the questions and concerns of legislators and regulators, and that we have really, through data, through research, qualitative, quantitative, through the stories, we've demonstrated that telehealth is good. And so that's an area that we're gonna be asking people to get engaged in, and again, happy to respond to folks if they have questions on that. But I think that this is really, as you said, a unique moment in time, G, and we have to take advantage of it and shame on us if we don't. So that's very much the direction that we're going in. Yeah, we couldn't agree more. In fact, one of the things you'll find in the show notes is one of the uh, pieces that we put out to the National Association of State Legislators talking about this very issue and urging them to continue the great work that they've done at the state level to ensure that mm -hmm. telehealth can expand beyond where we are today. Let's shift topics a little bit and talk a bit more about payers and, and how payers can support the expansion of telehealth. I mean, typically this conversation is about patients and providers and, and how we can expand it within that setting, but payers are a very equal and important part of this mix. So Carolyn, again, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how can payers support the use of telehealth and health expansion and, and where are the opportunities to help the payers expand their support? Right, I think it's in a couple areas. One is really the benefit design, right? If you think about um, if something gets, is gonna get covered for a consumer, it goes back to what's the benefit design for the insurance that they have. So, and that's not something that we've changed this year, right? Because this happened in the middle of a benefit year. Um, so I do think health plans are going back and looking at benefit design and how do they look at that and make it part of the offering and offer that flexibility. Um, and along with that, I think comes the education process for the consumer and the member that they have. And then even how do they direct that member? Um, you see a lot of um, health plans have looked at how do I direct the member to the right place for care, right? Um, if I need an MRI for my knee, I live outside of Philadelphia, right? I could probably go to 500 places probably within you know, 20 miles. 500 might be an exaggeration, but um, so how, how does, my insurer helped me understand who to select, right? Um, so I think as we move through this transition, how do they help educate me as a, as a member for that particular service? Where is that 
is there a, a telehealth virtual option, right? So I think that'll be really important is that, that member, directing a member to the right place um, and having that benefit design done in a way that the member can um, be rewarded, right? Um, sometimes even financially, there can be a financial gain. Um, they've done this with, you know, MRI facilities that if you go to the, in a sense, the rated A, right, you can pay less as the member. So I think that'll be part of that benefit design is describing how does the member um, benefit financially, how do they understand where to go, how do they understand the right things to do. Um, collaborating, right, collaborating with their provider community on reimbursement will be important, right? I mean, it, it does, that reimbursement question has to get solved, right? Because if it's not solved, um, this becomes very difficult to, to to sustain, right? So that's got to get solved and people have to have real conversation about how to make that happen. Um, and I think it goes to even, as I've talked to some health plans, the, the part that you mentioned, G, around the home monitoring, right? As you think about um, the aging population, right? And how many of those people would prefer to stay home, right? That ability to do mon virtual monitoring of your health condition, right, is really important. And a lot, you hear some progressive health plans talking about, I want to enable my member to be able to live at home. And that means I've got to figure out how I do remote monitoring about their their diabetes and their high blood pressure, or whatever that issue is that they have as a, as a member. So I think it comes down to um, benefit design, um, member education and, and directing that member, and then really having the, the right conversation about um, reimbursement and what encompasses with the reimbursement is utilization, right? And one of your comments is, this is not the panacea for everything. There, there is care that should be delivered in person, right? So how do we make sure that those guardrails are clear to people um, so that that care does happen in person, um, or to me, are the areas that the health plans need to engage and, and have those dialogues with the, the um, provider community. And it's an, interesting, it's an interesting aspect of consumerism in there as well, where the members can think about how do I shop and book my care in a way that really engages the thought process you just talked about, and certainly how do I pay for it that allows me to do that. And I think that consumerism is such an interesting catalyst for the virtual care model because we can bring in those learnings, as you both talked about, from other industries. We can bring in that truly consumer-integrated experience that eases the transition. And I think in a lot of ways, the payers would look at that and say, if it's a better experience, a most cost-effective experience, this eases their angst or their concern about paying for the services in that way. And I think you had a comment there as well. Yeah, it's interesting because I think that, that consumerism only goes so far. And so I think that what what really played out with the pandemic was the remote monitoring, all the work that was done to keep people safe at home, to keep first responders safe as they kept on getting constant exposure, healthcare workers on the front line. So um, part of it is that we, we don't even know what we want in some instances. And so it's gonna, it's gonna play out a little bit differently. But I think the other thing I would say in, in addition to what Carolyn said, about the benefit design, one thing that we're hearing a lot about is telehealth as a standalone option. And if you think about two of the really bright lights pre-pandemic in terms of leading the charge with virtual care, one was the VA, and they were a recipient of one of our awards this year because they've just done amazing work with virtual care. And then the second is the large self-insured employers. And these folks, you know, it was upward, it was over 95% who had some element of virtual services that they were offering to their employees because it was easier, it helped 
them, you know, be more productive, resilient, all that other good stuff. So I think we're going to see a lot more activity on telehealth as a standalone option, just like we're seeing the surge of the plush cares of the world or the one medicals that are, you know, more and more of a virtual design, if you will, and, and that's going to play out. So there's going to be a lot of changes and you're even seeing it with Humana um, doing some of the interesting things they're doing as well. So I, I think there's a lot more to come that we haven't anticipated. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and you make a great point. It is going to be about the experience. It's going to be about the provider's experience, the patient's experience, and the operational experience that will ultimately drive the expansion of telehealth, which I'm sure we all agree is the place where we want it to go. Just not, again, not just in or near office, but all the way out to the home and in broader care. Well, Carolyn, and this has been a great conversation, and I really appreciate you guys taking the time to talk to us today about the evolving role of telehealth. For our listeners, don't forget to check the show notes for resources and contact information related to the show. And stay tuned to the Change Healthcare podcast for more shows covering the healthcare topics that you care about. For more information about the American Telehealth Association, please visit their website at www.americantelemed.org and the Change Healthcare website at www.changehealthcare.com. I'm G. Shaw. Stay safe, stay well, wear your masks, and have a great rest of your day. Thanks, everybody. Great. Bye, everyone. Bye now. You've been listening to the Change Healthcare Podcast. For more information on this and other healthcare IT topics, please visit changehealthcare.com. Don't forget to check the show notes for useful links to related resources and our contact information. Thanks for listening and have a great day.